if you're losing your culture, don't lose your character. And so what I mean by that, and I'm not talking about within the church, I'm just saying as the culture around you becomes less Christ-like, that is not justification for those of us in the church to become less Christ-like in the way in which we respond to that. So the loss of culture does not need to correlate and correspond to a loss of character in the way in which the church engages that culture. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Well, Nathan, it's it's happened again. Another interesting article has appeared in the Atlantic. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna discuss this comes from Christianity Today's Russell Moore, and it's titled The American Evangelical Church is in Crisis. There's only one way out. It's likely this I mean, this is an excerpt from his book, Losing Our Religion which I believe has, has just come out. An altar call so, for evangelicals. An altar call for evangelicals. It's well, let me just, I, that, let me interrupt you just yeah. here. So do it. Uh, at what point do you get tired of the crisis language? Oh man. Well, I, or I'm on the there. other hand, is, is this, so anyway, we'll, we'll see, but we'll so see. There, there's definitely an issue here. Um, mm-hmm. I just think we've had a crisis of crises, crisis, 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 everything. So, you know, there, there is a sense in which, and this is, this runs the risk of. So I'm there. Yeah, I'm tired of it. It it sure looks good in print. <laughs> you want to, you I mean, you, to create a sense of urgency and all of that. That sounds real cynical. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. But yeah, I, I think we should return to that point though. The crisis. I think you and I are the most cynical people who talk about hope that I know of. It cer- it certainly seems that way <laughs> as I hear myself <laughs> on this podcast. Okay, but, but it's not it's it's not all down. So yeah, tell tell describe the article to us because I mean he is opt, optimistic in the end on all of this. But lay it out for us. What's the argument? Yeah, well, I mean, and a salient point to bring in here for those of you who don't know or don't remember, Russell Moore was once the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Committee for the Southern Baptist Convention. Not only is he no longer in that role, but he actually left the Southern Baptist Convention, which was, that was a big deal. I I mean, there were two Moors who left roughly around the same time. One of them was Beth, and Uh, one of them was Russell Moore. They lost their Moors. They lost their Moors. Yeah, so less is more, I think you would know. But they, anyway, this was, that was a big deal. These were two very people of, you know, major, major stature, but... What's interesting about that is for Russell Moore, this was this was a very painful decision for him. I know he's he he still says you know he still refers to it as the beloved beloved Southern Baptist Convention. So I mean this is the this is the de- denomination of his childhood. This is the these are the people he grew up with. This is this is somebody these are people he loved. So this was a very difficult decision for him, and I think that you know he did he certainly didn't enter into it lightly. So it's worth noting that right now as well. But in the article, really what he's talking about is we've all heard. So <laughs> crisis language is is prevalent. How about revival language, Nathan? <laughs> How do you feel about rev- the word revival? Um, so th- that one has a bit more of a theological underpinning to it used in, mm-hmm. in some ways. So I, uh, I'm cautiously okay with the word revival depending on how okay. it's being used. So yeah, because it's, I can t- it's more neutral to me in the sense of, um, yeah, I don't know. It, I, I, I like the the optimistic vibe of it, I, although what it is that we're trying to revive, so the subject and the objects in, involved here are very important to me in the use of that word. Absolutely. Well, 
I've heard the word revival so much ever since I moved to the United States, you know, like 25 years ago now. And I hadn't heard it in, in the way, in that way in Europe, by the way. I don't, the same sense wasn't being used. I remember hearing about, <laughs> come to our church, there's a revival on Friday mm-hmm. starting at 530. You know, you can make all those jokes about that. But on a deeper note, I mean, I'd hear people saying, well, I'm des- what's desperately needed is revival in this country. We need revival. Well, the controversial part of Russell Moore's argument here in this article, and, and I'm guessing he develops this at length in his book, is that what a lot of people mean when they say revival isn't actually theological in nature. What they're talking mm-hmm. about is nostalgia. That's what he calls it. Well, if we could just go back to the way the, the way things were, minus a couple of bad things, right? He, he includes a specific quote, which I'm sure is real. Let's go back to the 1950s without the racism and sexism or something like something along those lines. And he's pointing out that this sense of homelessness, and that's the word he uses, that a lot of us Christians feel right now. And he means that not just politically. I think a lot of people feel politically homeless right now, but he means that sense of homelessness that you feel in your church, in your denomination sometimes, that this is probably not a passing thing and that we need to recognize perhaps that this is that the Lord is this is the Lord's doing. And so in that sense, we need to lean into this this sense of homelessness and and here's where revival comes in. If we really want revival, we need to be open for the Lord to do something genuinely new. I think he's talking about a lot of people, the previous era of ministry, right? So I think he says before 2015, right? 2015 was pretty, pretty momentous. You can look at mm-hmm. Obergefell and, and then ever since then, you know, things have only escalated in terms of cultural change, social acceleration, and also all of the, the major controversies that have erupted in the evangelical fold as well especially, you know, the 20 and then the 2016 Trump election, all that. A lot of people, Russell Moore says, want to want to go back. They want to just wind the clocks back. And if we can, if this stuff would play itself out, then we could go back and recapture the energy and the power of a previous era. And he's saying, no, maybe that's that. No, that's not. He's not saying maybe that's gone. And we need to be open to something new, what the Lord is going to do next. So that's the major gist of the article. Yeah. So he's giving the the the. Seen what he sees as a true dilemma: either you can have nostalgia or revival, but not both. Is that the summarizing? Right. Yeah. And so it's yeah we're 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 playing into a number of different themes that part of this has to do with it. This doesn't just involve the church, Nathan. I I think a lot of people feel like this in general because. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, this is what social scientists, I do find this phrase very helpful, refer to as, not social scientists, I mean, social, social sociologists, perhaps. They, they, they refer to as social acceleration, right? And, you know, the, the, the fact that everything is just moving and escalating at such, at such a rapid pace, I think everybody feels that. And that sense of displacement that comes along with that, I think that's pretty, I think that's widespread right now. It's not, so I'm just saying it's not just limited to the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, so I like, I'm, I'm okay with this since the use of the word revival, I preach at revivals. Our church has revivals sometimes be a meaningful time of, I think if you think of what it means to revive and the actual, what the word really means and in the way it's used and has been historically, theologically, that's great. Um, I know some churches are also, um, 
switching to change their revival services and using the name renewal services. So that's more like a, a re-clarifying or re-energizing or rededicating. Um, you have all of these re-words, right? Um, and so what I think we're ultimately trying to do and, and what makes it difficult here is that, is there a set of parameters and beliefs that we need to continually realign ourselves with that that realignment then is what f makes the the incidental things or the accidental things flourish in a way that creates culture that we latch onto and appreciate and agree with. So is there is there still a fundamental story uh, that we point to um, that needs to be renewed in some sense that if we if we lose what, then we've lost the plot and kind of the story of who we are and how mm -hmm. we think about who we are is totally gone. So you can you can run that set of questions. I wasn't talking church-wise there, just any institution or culture in general has that idea of how do we, if you're, I, or maybe it's like this, Cameron, I don't know if you've ever been like hiking on a long trail that has blazes on the trees. Um, and sometimes you'll come to a clearing and there's the trail comes out of the woods and then you don't know where the trail goes from there. And so if you're, if you're hiking with somebody, oftentimes one person will stand at the last spot where you know the trail is, and then the other people will wander around until they can see, find the next blaze. And we're like, oh, okay. So here's where we go forward. And so what often happens, I think, is when you get lost, you say, okay, let's go back to the point where we knew we were on track and start over and go again from there. And so there's, a, there's, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea of saying, okay, everything's uh, crazy right now. What's the farthest point that we can go back in our mind where we know where the trail is and we'll go back to there and we'll start and we'll go forward. Now, that might be the feeling that people have, whether or not that is actually possible or beneficial uh, is a different set of circumstances. But I, I think that's the best analogy I can come up with on the spur of the moment of this idea of why is it sure. that we want to go back? Okay, let's go find our footing again. Let's get on the solid ground, take a deep breath, and then we move forward from here. That's that's structurally necessary sometimes, but it also sometimes has nostalgic elements wrapped up around it. Um, and it's hard for people to distinguish what's nostalgia and what's necessity um, and what's mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah, I mean, and if you look to the Old Testament, of course, and there are rituals and ceremonies that are specifically designed to aid younger generations in remembering what the Lord has done. And this is where Drew Johnson, the, the scholar who writes a lot about biblical epistemology, talks about how the biblical conception of memory is physical. That's a really, mm -hmm. that's a very arresting way of putting it. But, and of course, you, you can look at phrases, you know, you will do these things. And when your children ask, you know, why do we eat unleavened bread, for instance, you will tell them about the Exodus. You will tell them about the mighty works of the Lord. So we never, I mean, we always, that's, a, that's actually a deep human necessity, period. We have to do that. And to an extent, I mean, you look at different families, different traditions, everybody does do that. We have those little rituals. But of course, when you have clear intention and, and clear, you know, symbolic weight behind what's happening, then there's a whole, there's a whole different degree of focus that comes in, that comes to bear there. So ideally speaking, by the way, this is what our worship is doing. <laughs> it, right? Well, yeah, it's not just Old Testament. I mean, that's communion. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. No, it culminates in communion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the, 
that's you might say a sort of consummation there. But so yeah, this is what this is the shape of actual worship. So this is why Nathan, you and I often when we talk about you have to you go to church to get in touch with and worship God to get in touch with reality. So there is that element. But when we consider what what Russell Moore is talking about here, I think there are there are that come for me there are two big pieces that come to mind. And this is where I'll tread gently because this is where a little bit of some we have to speak critically here as well because some mistakes have been made. And these two are related. The one is the intergenerational element where you teach a younger generation, commend the faith to a younger generation. So there's the intergenerational piece. And the second is the model for ministry. And I think the problem here has, is, is, I think these two are, are related. The intergenerational note, I'll just say a few words about each of these. And then Nathan, I want you to weigh in. You know, full disclosure, well, we need a third one, don't we? So you need to, you need to, as I'm saying this, be thinking of a third one so we can round this out and make it Trinitarian and make it fit. All right, good, 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 good. Coming in for the, for the theological save there. But this is part of the, the motivation for why I wrote the book, Faith That Lasts with my dad. But so when I first started talking about this, Nathan, I talked about it in a few, on a few podcasts and interviews people thought I was, I may as well have been speaking a different language when I talked about this intergenerational piece. Now, I don't think that would be the case at all. But at the time, this was, this was pre, I think this was just 2017, maybe just, maybe this was still 2016. But what I said was, look, this election year is more than just the election of a man whose character many Christians have called into question. It's more than that. The prophetic witness of a lot of people in the older generation, a lot of parents, frankly, of younger people has been called into question here. Because a lot of the values we were taught by our elders about, you know, how character matters, integrity, the purity of of who you are, and also your commitment wholeheartedly to the truth, even when it's inconvenient, even when it comes at the cost, uh, when it comes at a political cost, or when it comes at a social cost, or when it comes at an economic cost. All of that, in a big way, t- started to take a back seat with a lot of people who were outspoken Christians. So that created a, a lot of cognitive dissonance. And so a lot of younger people began to question earnestly their childhood and what they were taught. Okay, why? so why do I believe this in the first place? It's, I mean, the people who were the most passionate you know, advocates now seem to be acting in a way that's contrary to what they've always taught me. So what on earth is going on? And that was more than just, I think, a juvenile reaction. I think people were, I mean, this was, we, you and I have both talked to people, Nathan, for whom this was more of an existential kind of crisis. What's going on? Mm. And then yeah, add because to that, there, there will be some of you who are listening yeah. who just scoff at this and say, no big deal. Sure. But just hear us out and saying that this was a massive deal for a lot of people, particularly people who grew up or were being formed in an era where evangelicals were pretty hard on Bill Clinton of saying, you know, presidential yes. leadership necessitates certain character. types of character and any type of uh, sexual suggestiveness outside of what, you know, God lays out in scripture disqualifies you for leadership. So if you're a, a child growing up during that time in which that was kind of the the preached narrative about what's necessary for political leadership in America. And then you fast forward a couple of years and suddenly the script flips the, this illusion that Cameron was referring to comes from with a question of saying, Oh, is this actually just about power 
or is this actually about theological consistency? And so mm-hmm. we're not, we live in a time in which everything becomes contentious and Cameron and I are not, are not making a yeah. partisan political argument here. We're looking at the theological outworkings that underlie the existential crisis and the theological confusion that happened mm-hmm. in a lot of young people's yeah. minds when they were trying to come to grips with the question of how is it that we as Christians engage culture and what are we willing to do and what are we not willing to do in order to cultivate the structure of reality that we think um, ought to be implemented as Christians. So I, I know it'll sound like we're pushing buttons there, but we're really not trying to. We're just naming a true thing that is there for a lot, a lot, a lot of people. So anyway, yeah. maybe you've seen it and experienced it, but if not, it's out there and it's real. And sorry for the first ones introducing you to this, but I think that's a large section of Russell Moore's new book is mm-hmm. kind of pointing at that um, new water that we're in here. Right. Yeah. So that that intergenerational dynamic, you'll use this is where also I think the use of the word deconstructing comes in, where some people basically what that really was shorthand is shorthand for often isn't necessarily somebody walking away from the faith, but somebody asking some very serious questions about, wait, why are we here? How did we get here? Why do we believe this? And really digging into those traditions. And often, by the way, the 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 outcome of that with many people I know is actually a deepened, more mature faith. By the way, I say that as a word of of hope. For oh me. yeah, it's not. Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not synonymous with walking away from the church. But so, on a related note, though, so there's the there's the intergenerational dynamic where that prophetic witness is damaged. But then there's the model of ministry. And I suspect that this is this is strongly connected to that nostalgia vision. So the previously, the and we've talked about this on the podcast before. The model of ministry for evangelical for the evangelical fold in America was predicated on a high degree of cultural capital and a lot of influence. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, I mean, amazingly, since the, I mean, I, I suppose it's hard to look at specific dates, but I guess in the really from the seventies, the early seventies onward evangelicalism emerged as not only a really powerful countercultural movement, but then a huge political force. And that was, I think now we're in a position to look at that as a mixed bag. Were there so, some really well, good things? Yeah. Let's, well, let me, so let me Nathan give this to you. So in, the, so in the fall yeah. of 2016, I was in Austin and somebody, a friend of mine that I've known for a while said, you know, what do you make of what's going on in the U.S. politically? And I said, you just saw the death of the moral majority. Yeah. And they're like, nah, really? And I'm like, yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and so think of think of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell, all of that idea of the moral majority. Um that all of that argumentation ended um in a very, very rapidly in a very sh- quick amount of time. Um, and that wasn't just in the political world, it was also in the behavior of a lot of well-named theologians and other shenanigans that were going on. So the the speed at which that shift happened. Um, was disorienting for a lot of people. Yeah. And again, the, well, the speed, there's that social acceleration piece. You know, it's also worth pointing out that in the the background, or the, just the sort of the ambient noise of our culture from the 1960s onward has been increasingly post-Christian. So we have been, as a nation, on a post-Christian tra- trajectory. And what I mean by that, that sounds that sounds really dramatic. I don't mean that we're, you know, we're on the verge of, destroying all of our churches or anything like that. That just means we've been moving consistently away from Christian traditions for a long time, tearing up our traditions. This is our friend Oz Guinness calls this the cut flower society syndrome. 
you want you you know you want the beautiful flower, but you don't want those roots anymore. But you take the you know you cut the flower, eventually it starts to wither, and so we don't want a lot of. I mean, there's been a growing resentment, especially from our cultural elites, against the Christian heritage of this nation. That now, I mean, we've come to a place now where where that's. I mean, we're just we're pretty far along there. So that's also that's playing a role here too. But what this means, though, practically is so we the evangelical evangelicals in particular had had a very their model of ministry. The model of ministry was very, I think, very much dependent on a high level of cultural influence. So the question now is, as we move forward into this new era of a feeling of homelessness, I like that. Sometimes I think the exile language can sound a little bit a little bit rich because I mean we're still in a in a nation where I mean it says church on a sign on this on a street that I take to get to my house. I mean I, I'm hesitant it's, to well, call it to say exile right well, so now. Well let me let me well so while we're digging ourselves in a hole here. So I was at a uh, Acadia Divinity School in Nova Scotia for a, a week and I think their dean or one of their professors there said how fascinating it is to look at America using the phrase exile, or looking at churches in America, using the phrase exile. And she said, the reason I find that is amusing is usually people don't fly the flag of their oppressor in their places of worship if they think they're exiled by that group. So it was like, well, that was a little on the nose, (laughs) Um, but, but that's there. So yeah, I think we do want to be careful Mm -hmm. with, with the word uh, exile there. That's, that's not quite right yet. I like the word homelessness though. I think that, I think that's helpful. I think a lot of us do feel politically homeless. I think a lot of us feel denominationally homeless, but this is why, by the way, we, we had an episode a while ago, you know, can't stand your church, maybe stay. <laughs> I, that's yeah. still our argument that we're not saying there aren't reasons to leave a church. Of course there are, there are always exceptional circumstances, but by and large, what we need are people who are going to be faithful to their churches and lean in in these difficult moments and work work together to meet the challenges of the moment. So let me let me let me try to pull a couple of threads here together with this statement and see if this captures it. I think what we would want to say is if you're losing your culture, don't lose your character. Um and and so what That's I mean great. by that is, and great. I'm not talking about within the church, I'm just saying as the culture around you becomes less Christ-like, that is not justification for those of us in the church to become less Christ-like in the way in which we respond to that. So the loss of culture does not need to correlate and correspond to a loss of character in the way in which the church engages that culture. Well, and we need to be willing to lose influence for the sake of integrity. Yeah, see, that's not popular, Cameron. You said bad words. (laughs) I did. I said lose. And I've I've been saying this for a long time. The phrase I've been using is if 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 we want to press into faithfulness today, we have to as Christians learn to lose well. But I well, want so to be very to clear clarif- by that. Clarify on what you mean by what it is that we lose. Because right. I'm gonna I'm gonna question yes, whether or not it is a loss. So Oh yes. I mean and so right, yeah. go ahead. Then I'll I'm yeah. speaking in paradoxical language here. So let me yeah, let me explicate it here for just a second. If you can gain cultural influence only at the cost of your of by sacrificing your convictions, in other words, you know, being you know, adding some some morally ambiguous behavior into it, the cost is too high. If you've sacrificed your convictions on the altar of political, economic, cultural expediency, the price is too high. 
So that's the sense in which we need to, but this is true of Christians always down the ages. This is always the case, by the way. This was the case in those times that for which many people are nostalgic, by the way, when things seem to be going perfectly well. All of this still matters. We need to, Oz Guinness had the phrase impossible people to describe Christians. This was, this was somebody describing early church Christians as impossible people. They were unbribable. They were unclubbable. You just, you could not get them in your corner if you tried to get them to violate their principles. That should always be true of Christians. That's, in fact, that's part of the basics of being a Christian. So in that sense, we need to be willing to lose stature. We need to be willing to lose influence. We need to be willing to have some doors closed. If, because if we, if keeping those doors open were only possible through dishonesty, then it wouldn't be a win. As Nathan's saying, that would actually be a loss. It would come. It comes at a tremendous cost. It comes at a cost to your own character, to your prophetic witness. And guess what? I don't have to give you examples because all you have to do is open your eyes and look at what's happened in the last several years, and you are seeing the cost of that, the, of those compromises. Frankly, often with good intentions, but they were compromises. Yeah. So, and this is probably where we need to interject. Just a reminder here: most of you have seen this or been thinking this already that. Part of the danger of the phrase culture wars is that in war, people do some really interesting things and can easily justify their actions if they're convinced that the outcome is good. And so what what we're seeing is like a modern cultural just war theory working itself out to say there is a sense in which if the end is just, then the way in which you get to that end becomes justified. And so I hadn't quite thought of it in that terms of like, what does it mean to wage a just war culturally speaking? But it seems like there's some parallels there of saying, here are things that in times of peace as Christians, we would never do. But in times of war, well, okay. And we would say, here are things that yeah. when you know everything is going well in culture, we would say, gasp, but it's a culture war. So now we're permitted to do this. And so that's the fundamental tension, I think, of saying, if you if you win by watering down what the church is, the thing you're left with on the other side does not have the teeth and the witness and the spine to engage what's left culturally. And so that's the thing that's being lost is our actual unique witness. If we, um, there was, I was just, my grandfather was having an argument with somebody one time. Um, and he said, if I didn't have to become like you to get rid of you, I would. (laughs) Um, and so there's a sense of like, we're, I mean, this is pretty tense, but it was, it was a sense of like the thing that irritates me about you in order for me to, I'm not going to change the way in which I treat and engage with people just for the expediency of that. And so that will always be the challenge of the virtue ethicist and of the person who is really, really trying to follow what Jesus is teaching us and our behavior toward, uh, our enemy that will be either a massive conflict and tension for us or a phenomenal witness about us as we engage the world. Yeah, and it's it's worth pointing out that the one major philosophical tradition in the United States is pragmatism. And we're all hardwired that way because we if you live in this country, this we're the can-do nation. We're we are the innovators, we're the go with figure out how to make this work. Let's solve this problem. And by the way, I would hasten to point out that's often a wonderful thing. That's part of what's worth worth celebrating. Yeah, it's great. We're like the MacGyver on steroids. 
pretty much. I mean, MacGyver on steroids is not a bad way to describe the United States in some ways. But on the other hand, when it's not reined in carefully by principle and by our convictions, it can run roughshod over the truth. And you can get to a place where you say, well, okay, who cares about moral principles? Who cares about convictions? We need to get stuff done. We need the right guy in the Oval Office. We need the right legislation. We need to be in those doors. You know, I know that we've, you know, there's some questionable maneuvers that we're going to have to pull to get in there. But with the, the key, the key is to get in there. We need, we need to be in those sectors. We need to be in those boardrooms. We need to be making these decisions for the good of everyone. Okay. All right. That's Time a out. powerful siren call. Yeah. So, so it is. And I can imagine there are people who are listening who say, yeah, and that's exactly what needs to happen. That's exactly what we need to do. I mean, I think lots of people would say, yeah, we hear you there, Cameron, but the odds are, the stakes are too high to not do this. All right, mm -hmm. let's grant, let's grant to you, if you're a listener who's in that category, that that's great, that, that you got that sorted out and that makes sense in your mind. All we're saying is don't be surprised if there's a whole generation of young Christians who are sitting there with their mouths hanging open, trying to figure out what in the world actually makes you tick. That's what mm -hmm. we're saying here, I think. Am I getting that right, Cameron? You're getting that right? Yeah. I mean, what I've literally here, I'll give you some of the questions I've I've gotten verbatim, and I know you've gotten them too, Nathan. Do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you really well, think it, character matters? <laughs> and you've and you've probably gotten this too, Cameron. Like where this becomes clear is um, so I, I'm thinking of situations where I've sat down with like a parent and a child, and the child, and when I say parent child, I'm talking about like somebody who's 27 uh as the young person, and then their parents yeah. 47 or whatever. And, and this is where you can see this radical, like same household, same church and looking at each other, like, who are you and how do you have a perspective that's so different than mine? And, mm -hmm. and so that's an interesting one to mediate those conversations of saying where the kid is saying, I think I'm being faithful to everything that you ever taught me. That's why I'm confused about your ability to say X, Y, Z, because that's not where I thought what you taught me was leading. Yeah, which is why we we need to we need to call into question the model, which was not always bad, by the way. So is is positive cultural influence a bad thing? Well, no, no. of course not. If it's if it's pursued in the proper proper way, if it's pursued, you know, in in a manner that is ethical and worthwhile, yes, of course. There's nothing wrong with it. But is <laughs> sometimes we have in the evangelical fold there's a there's a view of there's just a there's an inescapable kind of populism that's deeply connected to the kind of activism that you see often we're, we're, we're we really stress action and this i owe this insight to mark knoll you know famously who wrote the the scandal of the evangelical mind but he's a fine historian but he pointed out once when he was on a panel when they were i think it was the 20-year anniversary of the scandal of the evangelical mind and the you know, the person interviewing him asked him, do you, do you think much has changed since you wrote the book? And he said, of course, yeah, tons has changed. There's been a groundswell of academic activity. You have the, you know, Evangelical Theological Society. You have the Evangelical Philosophical Society. You got all this, all this great stuff. But he said, evangelicals are always going to be sort of activists at heart. And because of that, one of our that's one of our great strengths. We're great at mobilizing people. We're great at mobilizing people for a cause. 
It's also one of our weaknesses because we tend to rush headlong into action without thinking about long-term consequences. And that's where I think we need to pause now and be open in this moment of a feeling of homelessness and increasing marginalization. I'm comfortable using the word marginalized when it when it's mm-hmm. connected to Christians, especially in, you know, culturally elite sectors and places. We need to lean into that and now prayerfully go to the Lord in obedience and say, what does it mean for me to use the gifts and talents I have right now? And what does faithfulness look like in this moment? And be open for something new from from the Lord. Yeah, let's let's also just highlight here real quick, Cameron. uh, Let's be equal opportunity offender that you and I are speaking from within the conservative theological fold um, Mm -hmm. because that's where we are. Although the lines of argumentation that we've been making apply to a whole lot of other categories. So you would see across the political spectrum, a whole lot of this too, of like, Hey, what I thought it meant to be a Republican isn't what's actually happening. What I thought it meant to be a Democrat isn't actually what's happening. What happened to the Tea Party? What happened to the Libertarians? I mean, everybody's mm-hmm. asking this question of saying the label that I thought I grew up under no longer resembles the thing that I. So, so that sense of homelessness—that's not just a Christian thing, and it's not just a conservative thing, and it's not just a liberal thing. Um, so, in, to some degree, that's that makes this extra important is to to recognize this is not a unique. If you find yourself in that situation, you're not unique. Um, and it isn't just, well, conservative evangelical Christians have trouble with this. I mean, okay, we're talking about a letter that Russell Moore, who's the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, wrote. So sure, we're, with, we're within this wheelhouse, but it isn't confined just to us. The difference is that historically within conservative, conservative evangelicalism, we've had a higher standard for our own ethical behavior than we've seen in some of the other sectors of uh, different cultural groups or political movements or what have you or activism. So that's the only that's the primary difference here is you can't be a hypocrite if you don't have any standards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, line, so, yeah. so, so evangelical Christianity is always open to saying we have an ideal and we're not getting it right, and that doesn't mean that you throw out the ideal. It means that you revive yourself back into keeping with what the ideal is. And so as Christians, scrap the political party, we're saying our ideal is Christ-likeness. We start there, and then we say, what are the ways in which I can engage the culture and the society in which I live? And this is for all of you who are listening international, internationally as well. What are the, to, to what point can I engage in this system as a Christian before I have to start violating my conscience as a Christian? And I would say, be involved, clear up to that limit but don't lose your character out of fear of losing your culture. That's the most concise way that I can probably try to, I I feel Cameron, like we opened a whole bunch of cans of worms that people should have a lot of questions about, and we might have to go worm hunting and try to get some of them back in the can in the future. But am I hearing, am I hearing us say that largely you think Russell Moore is accurately putting his finger on something that is very real within modern evangelical Christianity, at least in America? I think he is, yes. And I think most people who, those of you who have read the article and those of you who will read it will find a lot with which to identify, regardless of where you find yourself. Yeah. One more thing here. I want to throw this in here. And because, and I've said this like 
a thousand times in the last three years, and that's almost not exaggerating, is there is a generational difference here that arises from the fact that, you know, when I talk, said, I was talking about talking to like the daughter and her mother and like, they're, like, who are you? There are things that if you're listening to this and you're less than 40, there are things that your parents' generation can remember losing that never existed in your lifetime. Um, I never flew on a plane before TSA. I never rode in a car before there's a seatbelt wall. Uh, you know, on and on and on we go. So there are lots of things that are normal for me that there are people who are alive who can remember before that thing. So if you're an older person and you're listening to this, this is also part of the reason that young people, by and large, are very enthusiastic about the future of the church because they don't remember the loss of the thing that oftentimes you're lamenting losing. So the younger generation comes along and says, here's a vibrant way to hold our faith and to be serious and theologically conservative about the direction of where we're going that aren't dependent on some of the things that are embedded in the nostalgia only of some older Christians. Now, where we have to be careful if you're the younger listener is there's a, a right to lament the loss of good things. So don't deny that of the older Christians around you. And secondly, there's a whole lot to learn from that. So ask good questions and see what was lost and what was really appreciated there because those things might not be just past tense. They might be part of the future. And so if there are people who are lamenting the loss of the structure of community or the personalities uh, or, the, or the depth um, of conversation or the intensity of community, all of that is, is good and should be part of what we're hoping for in the future. So sometimes there are things like that that were part of the past that we've lost in a modern technological age that we want to recover. So this is not a, it was bad, it was old, therefore it's bad, or it was old, therefore it's good, or it's new, therefore it's good, or it's new, therefore it's bad. We, we can't be that simplistic about it as Christians, and that's why it calls for faithfulness and for a whole lot of serious intentionality on every aspect of what we're doing in life. And so I think part of what I hope that Cameron and I are doing is we play with this idea that if Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord of everything, which means there isn't anything that we can't start talking about and see the way in which it's embedded with integrity into our faith. And so particularly on some of these big national movements of how a culture is shaped and formed, we want to go slowly here, think wisely, and make sure that we're in step with the spirit, not in step with the spirit of our times. And so that on the other end of this, we can be an actual witness to the weary world around us who needs to know the good news of what it is that we know and have to offer in the name of Jesus. So hopefully this is all encouraging to you. Let's recognize it's different, but different isn't always bad. Uh, the Christ is not in crisis. Uh, whether or not the American evangelical church is in crisis, we'll leave that to you to decide, but the church is not Christ church is not in crisis. There is a plan. You have an opportunity to be part of it. Let's think clearly and walk faithfully um, and do so with a grin in our soul and a skip in our step as we move forward into whatever the Lord has for us next. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www toltogether.com That's toltogether.com And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.